tired mother ran into the grocery store with her young daughter just to pick up a few quick items on the way home. And it began. Mommy, 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 would you buy me this, mommy? I want this, mommy. Monica, we just have a few items to get, and then we'll be home. Mommy, mommy, I want this cereal. I want this kind of cereal. Mommy, mommy. Monica, we're, we're halfway done now. Mommy, mommy, give me this. Would you buy that for me? Yeah, mommy, come on. Monica, we'll be home in five minutes, and then you can take a nap. While getting in the car, the tired mother was approached by another shopper who commended her. I couldn't help but notice how patient you were with your little daughter, Monica. The woman said, my daughter's name is Susan. I'm Monica. <laughs> Do you ever feel that way? Just, just overwhelmed? A lot of tugs, a lot of directions. And the, the darkness of sin can breed a, a sense of despondency. And, and like that mother, at times we may feel a, a bit overwhelmed by the darkness and the decay of a fallen world. It, it weighs heavily upon us with a sense of discouragement. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. I've read ahead to the end of the, the Bible, and it, it tells me that Christ and his church win. And so the ultimate victory will be light prevailing over darkness. Meanwhile, our task is to lead a rescue mission, shining that light to those who are trapped in a collapsed mine shaft, guiding them with the light to safety through salvation and the life that is truly life. So live boldly. Life is a gift. That's why we call it the present. Don't miss the opportunities. Seize the moment. Don't be tentative and, and miss out on living it to the max. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus reminded, I have come that you may have life more abundant. Philippians chapter 1 is, is where we are going to study today. And uh, the context of this passage uh, places us in, in the year A.D. 60. The Apostle Paul is a prisoner in Rome. And while chained and imprisoned, Paul used that opportunity to tell the guards about Jesus. And you talk about a captive audience, I bet the, the guards wondered who was the, the prisoner and, and who was the guard. It says in, in verses 12 through 14 that Paul's imprisonment, which on the surface would seem to be a bad thing, had actually served to advance the gospel, which would certainly be a good thing. You see, the effect of encountering this winsome witness for Christ had sent reverberations throughout the ranks of the palace guard, identifying the cause of Paul's suffering as being linked to his allegiance for Jesus. Now, had Paul cowered and clammed up, others would have withdrawn into their shells of silence, making the sharing of Christ a covert operation. Instead, just the opposite took place. Instead, his bold responses emboldened his Christian brothers and sisters to courageously declare the gospel's truth without fear of reprisal. Regardless of the motives for some serving Christ were doing so for the wrong purposes, Paul was counting the greater good that others are being reached, and he rejoiced and would continue to rejoice. In fact, Paul made five references to joy or rejoice in the first chapter of Philippians alone. 
instead of wringing his hands over his hardship. Oh, what's going to become of me now? I'm in prison. I want to be out witnessing, but I'm stuck behind these bars. Instead of taking that attitude, Paul embraced the circumstances and he found the silver lining. Your prayers and your partnership, he said, will continue to propel me toward God's provision. Paul states, I'm going to find deliverance one way or the other, either through my release from prison or via redemption to heaven following my death. Either way, he said, God's got this. I want you to see this morning that life with the Lord is an adventure that he intends us to live boldly. And that leads us to the place where our text starts in, in verse 20 of Philippians chapter 1. To live boldly, first we must be unashamed of our Lord. Verse 20 says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul didn't want to embarrass or, or disappoint the Lord, and as he faced persecution, imprisonment, and eventual execution, he didn't want to fail God and recant from all the things he had written about and, and preached. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John in circa A.D. 155. He was taken to the Roman Colosseum to be publicly burned at the stake for being a Christian. And the Roman proconsul offered Polycarp a, a final chance to deny his faith in Jesus and go free. But Polycarp would not recant. And this is what was recorded as his final statement. Eighty and six years have I served my Lord, and never once has he done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Light the flames. Some of our missionaries today have faced firsthand the, the threat, the, the physical oppression of stern persecution. Most of us have tasted of it only mildly. In America. I believe that could change in the future. And may we be ready to stand unashamed for our Lord if and when that time comes. In Bible college, I had a professor, William Julick, for a, a class on missions. And he had us read a book by Herbert Cain that made a bold statement. It, it said, The blood of martyrs was the seed that grew the early church. And that surprised me as a college student to learn that historically the church grew more during times of persecution than it did during times of prosperity. It doesn't surprise me at all now. I've seen that churches existing without some resistance or persecution have a tendency to get fat, slow, lazy, ineffective, or churches in countries undergoing religious oppression and, and active persecution are more effective in purpose, often more vibrant in, in witness, and, and usually growing despite the external forces trying to repress their spiritual progress. Paul was unashamed, live or die. And here in Philippians 2, it, it wasn't just an academic question where the Apostle Paul was Wondering, wondering in his mind, but he was actually a prisoner in chains 
who would be eventually executed by the evil emperor Nero and, and martyred for his faith in Jesus. He was living out this dilemma firsthand. And he realized that walking by faith was a life or death matter. When it comes time to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. Are you ready? Have you made your preparations? Have you obeyed the Lord and, and yielded your life to him, making him your savior? Have you washed your, your sins away in Christian baptism and risen to walk in that newness of life? I want to ask you this morning, when was the last time that you prayed for boldness? Most of the time our prayers center on our comfort, our protection from harm or our health problems. Lord, give me a safe trip or help the sick people or, or, or bless us. And Lord, keep us safe. And there is anything wrong or evil with that. But we probably need to add the element of praying for boldness as we live each day and our ambassadors representing Christ to a lost world. Now, I have to agree with Andy Stanley when he observed, if the first century Christians had prayed like we often do, Christianity would never have made it out of the first century. Isn't that an interesting perspective? Let's go back to the passage uh, to, to Acts chapter 4. I want you to see the boldness of those first Christians. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, and they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And then dropping down there in chapter 4 to verse 18. When they called them in again, Peter and John, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Okay, we're going to let you go. We're not going to kill you. But we want absolute silence, zero tolerance if you speak or preach about Jesus. Is that understood? They threatened Verse 19, Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They couldn't keep quiet about Jesus, and they wouldn't keep quiet about Jesus. He bubbled up in their conversations. They couldn't contain their enthusiasm of telling their good friends about their best friend. They were living on assignment from God, and they prayed for more boldness in sharing the Lord with others. And then dropping down to Acts 4, 29, it says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Maybe that should be your prayer tomorrow. Lord, you know there are some people at work that love mocking you in your church, would you give me greater boldness in speaking confidently and courageously about you? Lord, you know I have some friends at school that uh, don't think God's way is, is the right way. Would you give me greater boldness in helping shine the light and let them see the truth that, that I've discovered? It says in verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they, was, where, where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. 
Maybe the reason that bold element is missing from your life is because it's missing from your prayer. It's missing from your request for God to work boldly in you as you live life boldly. Peter and John were not attempting to be macho. They weren't doing this on their own bravado. It was God who empowered them to stand strong for what was right. So let's review. To live boldly, first, we must be unashamed of our Lord. And then next, we must be undivided in our focus. Back in chapter 1, Paul began to reflect in verse 22. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I do? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Whether he lived or died, Paul was sold out to the Lord. His primary purpose was WWJD. What would Jesus do? And that drove his existence. That provided him with a fulfillment beyond what he had known before becoming a Christian. We know a little bit about Paul's life, B.C., and he was well-schooled, well-funded, a successful teacher of the law, comparable to a leading lawyer today. He, he had status. He had the corner office. He possessed power, prestige. Politically, he was on the fast track. He was winning. Philippians 3, he began to recite his credentials. No brag, just fact. He said, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day in strict observance of that Jewish custom. I was of the people of Israel, God's chosen people, of the tribe of, of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a member of the Pharisees, this elite group. As for zeal, I was sold out to persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, he said, faultless. I mean, I was a rule keeper. I, I did it all right. I did it according to the book. I don't think anyone can, can top that. Listen to his assessment of how becoming a Christian reordered his priorities, his pursuits in life. He said, all of those lifetime achievements no longer mattered. They were rubbish, waste, debris compared to knowing Jesus. And his standard of evaluation had shifted as he explained, I counted all loss compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. It's been said that, that some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. Well, well living as, as separatists, circling the wagons, that mentality like the Amish communities, withdrawing from society is one approach that people have to try to sustain right living. And the, the other approach is, is just the opposite. It's, it's be one of the boys, fit in, 
until there's no significant distinction or separation between our values or our actions, our conversations, our practices, and those of the world. And I believe that both of those extremes are, are dangerous. Instead, I believe we need to strive for that delicate balance to be in the world, but not of the world. Let me use this example of, of a rowboat. A rowboat is made to be in water. But if the boat springs a leak and you have water enter the boat, then you have a big problem, and in time, the boat is going to sink. We're called to live in a broken, fallen, often corrupt world, but we are to remain untainted, unaffected by it, and help provide guidance to those around us who are seeking the light. And there are many distractions to, to take our focus off of Christ, and they're not all bad things. Sometimes the good things can keep us from the best things. Sometimes the, the wrong things beckon and, and call us to drift and, and disobey our Lord. Portia Nelson has written a piece entitled Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. It reads, chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2, I walk down the same street. There's a, a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault, and it still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. In the case of the Apostle Paul, he was torn between two good options, dying and going to heaven now, or remaining to serve the churches and joining his Lord in heaven later. And he was in a quandary. Again, listen to his moral dilemma. I said, if I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I, I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. He remained undivided. In his focus. Paul had settled the matter. He knew what was of greater value, eternity in heaven. He accepted that what was more expedient, critical, immediately vital, was to continue to, to reach and teach and extend the kingdom while on earth. And his reward for his faithfulness would be enjoyed later. Amy Carmichael observed, we will have all of eternity to celebrate the victories, but only until sunset to win them. To live boldly, we must be unashamed of our Lord. We must be undivided in our focus. And then finally, we must be undistracted in our purpose. Be undistracted in our purpose. Verses 25 and 26 talk about that. 
two teenagers were arrested for disorderly conduct, and the, the police sergeant told them they were entitled to one phone call. And then sometime later, a man entered the police station and asked for the boys by name. The sergeant said, I suppose you're their lawyer. Nope, the chap replied, I'm just here to deliver their pizza. <laughs> well, sometimes we can get distracted from our, our real purpose. What is at hand? Now listen to what Paul said in verses 25 and 26 of our text. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Only after discovering your purpose can you begin to live boldly. Can you fulfill the purpose that God made you, for which he made you? Your ministry is where your passion and your gifts intersect. When you've been gifted by God to do certain things, you have those talents, those abilities, and it's energizing to you and your, your soul. That's that sweet spot, that intersection where you should be volunteering and, and serving and, and using your, your talents for God. Let me tell you about a, a friend named Van. Van, in his retirement, had become a, a high school girls golf coach, but he came in one day to, to talk with me years ago, and he said, he, although he enjoyed coaching, he felt that he had more to contribute. He felt like he didn't have much purpose left in, in life. And as we talked, and he told me about some of his experiences in, in the war, I, I invited him to speak at an upcoming men's retreat and, and just share his testimony of, of how God had used him during World War II. And this veteran had been part of the very first unit to arrive and, and liberate the, the infamous Dachau concentration camp. And as a young teenager, he witnessed the atrocities of, of war, the, the devastation that, that Hitler wreaked on, on Europe. And after that men's retreat, I encouraged Van to, to go around to area high schools and, and share with history classes his experiences from the war. And he discovered a, a new purpose in life, a new enthusiasm. And, and in time, he helped inform a whole new generation about the sacrifices that were made by soldiers during World War II. He was too young to enlist, and so he had exaggerated his age, and he was sent as a 16-year-old young man to, to war-torn Europe. One of his war experiences involved walking by this uh, railroad train boxcar that was transporting dead bodies of, of Jews, when all of a sudden he saw an arm dangling out through one of the slots, and it was moving. And so he got the train stopped, and they went and opened it up and climbed down to where this individual was still alive. They retrieved the young man, and Van's observation saved that boy's life. Van said he, he thought about him many times through the years and wondered how that young man's life turned out where he was now. Van finished strong, and he lived out his final years with a greater purpose, with a renewed fulfillment. And that comes when we discover our purpose and we begin to accomplish it. Ephesians 2.10 makes it clear that God designed a purpose for each one of us. It says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16, said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Remember that the light of Christ must shine in us before it can shine out on others. When you are fulfilling the purpose of your life, you will find fulfillment in your life. If you aren't fulfilling your purpose in life, then true, lasting satisfaction will always remain elusively just beyond your reach. To find fulfillment, you have to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing to the Christian is the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 19, just before his return to heaven, Jesus left his apostles with this final directive. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Go, teach, baptize, teach. Christ's last command must be our first concern. We have the good news that really changes lives forever, so share it. Tell others. When you find a, a good product or restaurant or a book or a song, what do you do? You tell others, you've got to try this, or this was outstanding, or you want them to try it so that they can benefit from it as well. Your, your first impulse is to share it with others. Years ago, a commuter on a suburban railroad was known by all the regular riders on the 515 local. He, he was a, a well-dressed, quiet young man. As the train pulled out of the station, he would go to the front of the car in which he was riding, and he would walk down the aisle speaking to each seat of passengers as he went. And this is what he would repeat as he progressed to the back of the train. Excuse me, but if any of your family or friends are blind or threatened with blindness, tell them to consult Dr. Carl. He restored my sight. His testimony was courteous, confident, and courageously repeated faithfully. The man had good news, and he couldn't keep it to himself. He had to share it with the hope that it would help another as it had changed his life. Your testimony is irrefutable. Share it often. Tell others who need to hear how Christ has changed your life, the, the difference he's made. If you had the cure for cancer, but you didn't let anyone else know about that message of life, that would be criminal. We have the message of eternal life. But all too often, we silently keep it to ourselves, failing to share the message of hope with our fellow sinners who also are in need of the cure. We each have a duty to tell others the message of hope that we have found in Jesus. Norman Vincent Peale once said, everyone who ever followed Christ became a fisher of men. If you are not fishing, then you are not following. End quote. Barbara Brown Taylor tells of a university professor being invited to speak at a military base one December, and there he met an unforgettable soldier named Ralph. Ralph had been sent to pick him up at the airport, and after they had introduced themselves, they, they headed toward the baggage claim 
as they walked down the concourse, Ralph kept disappearing. Once to help an older woman whose suitcase had fallen open. Once to lift two toddlers up to where they could see Santa Claus. Uh, Another time, he stopped to give directions to someone who was lost. And each time, he came back and rejoined the professor with a big smile on his face. Professor asked, where did you learn that? What, Ralph said. Where did you learn to live like that? Oh, Ralph said, I I guess during the war. He, He told the professor about his tour of duty in Vietnam and how it was his job to clear minefields and how he watched his friends blow up before his eyes one after another. He said, I I learned to live between steps. I never knew whether the next one would be my last, so I learned to get everything I could out of the moment between when I picked up my foot and when I put it down again. Every step I took was a whole new world, and I guess I've been that way ever since. The abundance of our lives is not determined by how long we live, but by how well we live. Live boldly. Make your life more than an existence. Make it count. There there has to be more to life than, than getting up, going to work, coming home, going to bed, getting up, and going to work. There has to be more. There is more. Refuse to let fear silence you from living your life for Christ. Live boldly. Make your life about living for Jesus. Make your life about serving others. Live your life sharing Jesus with others. Live your life focused on eternity, not just preoccupied with our limited time here on earth. Live boldly.